Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello, I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and I'm so glad you've tuned into this special Meet the Author slash Democracy Sausage event with the multi-talented Catherine Murphy. But before we do that, Meet the Author, that is, let me acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And can I also do a quick shout out to Emeritus Fellow Colin Steele, who's both the brains and the brawn behind this highly regarded ANU Canberra Times Meet the Author series for over three decades. Catherine Murphy is a hugely respected journalist, columnist, broadcast commentator and author. She's worked in the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery since 1996 for the Australian Financial Review, The Australian, The Age, and these days she's political editor for Guardian Australia. She's won numerous plaudits, including the Paul Lynham Award for Press Gallery Journalism, and in the interest of full disclosure, not only did uh, she and I work together at the same masthead for some time, or for a small amount of time really, we are both currently board members of the National Press Club. Catherine, welcome and congratulations on this important and very timely quarterly essay. Thank you, Mark. It's lovely to be here. It's not often that we can say of a sitting PM that he or she is an enigma, uh, <laughs> but uh, that Scott Morrison did essentially win the election on a negative, on essentially being not the bill you can't afford. Yeah, correct. Um, and so was this your original motivation for doing this quarterly essay to, to somehow sort of colour in the the line drawing that we had of Scott Morrison, but of course events have come along and uh, affected yeah. both his government and I guess your assignment as yeah, exa- well. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's actually a lovely way of putting it, to fill in the line drawing. That is really a beautiful way of constructing the project because that's really what it was about. Yes, look, I was originally contracted uh, by the lovely folks at Quarterly Essay to do a, a, a sort of uh, a traditional Quarterly Essay prime ministerial profile of Scott Morrison. Uh, regular readers of the quarterly will know, you know, there's been one of Kevin Rudd, there was a one about Malcolm Turnbull. It's, it's mm-hmm. sort of, they do these every, every so often. But when COVID came along, uh, my assignment changed, uh, because obviously this is a massive event that we're all still living through. Uh, and, uh, and it presented a, a bunch of practical and definitional challenges for Scott Morrison. And because he is this enigmatic character, because he is really genuinely difficult to 
get a handle mm. on. The more you watch him in a strange way, the less you know. Uh, it 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 was both important history that I wanted to document, and it was also uh, a lens through which I could view him. So it's sort of like at various points uh, in the sort of decision-making process of these six months, I could press pause on Scott Morrison and, and sort of rotate him around and look at him from... Like, like we see on these sporting, well, sophisticated sporting broadcasts well, now where they'll sort of, you know, use that kind of 3D or exactly. whatever it is, uh, camera imaging. Exactly. It was, a mate of mine said it was a bit like um, those surgeries that are performed when the patient is, is fully conscious, anaesthetised but fully conscious, and you kind of poke these elements of the body and you say, Madam, can you feel this? Or what it, so it was, it was a bit like that exercise in my mind. So It's a really interesting picture, mind you, of, of also what... <laughs> what essentially the government's doing to the country at the moment, yes. which is yeah. sort of doing a whole lot of things that we're not used to having done yeah. while we're conscious yes. and in many cases saying, yes, that's okay, you can proceed, even though some of these things are very difficult to take. Yeah, that's right. And I guess we'll come to that a, yes. a, a bit a I'm, bit I'm sure on. you'll take me there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps it's an insider thing, but I particularly like the way you kind of wrote your way into this essay uh, with the account of being in the PM's office, uh, particularly your feelings around that moment and how you perceived he was feeling. And your reflection really that the last time you'd been there, Malcolm Turnbull had been serving what you described as a some sort of health-enhancing <laughs> yes, tea. Yes. And it reminded me that I'd in fact been there as well. Not have. not at the same no, no, uh, interview, but in fact, yes. uh, Peter Hartcher and I did the very first interview that Morrison did, uh, sorry, that uh, Turnbull did yeah. as, as Prime Minister, um, at least the first print interview that he did. And it was quite a you know, very similar exercise where we sat there drinking tea out of these small yes, Chinese cups, Chinese and, cups. Uh, yep. and listened to various theories about value capture uh, <laughs> and uh, a number of other things that in some cases probably had less to do with uh, what, what turned out to be the Turnbull government than perhaps his original ideas um, might have said. But yeah. anyway, you were, you were making the comparison really, I suppose, with... Uh, with Malcolm Turnbull and then Scott Morrison, and yeah. it was quite different. Yeah, quite different. Well, it's every every time you visit, and Mark will know this obviously. Uh, every time you visit the prime ministerial office with a different occupant, you have a different experience of visiting that office. Mm. And uh, and the yeah, the last time I was there was with Malcolm Turnbull, and it was just a way of setting up uh, the, the the timing of the conversation that we had because it was in July and it was literally the last 24 maybe 48 hours at the outside period where Scott Morrison hoped that things would not go bad in Victoria and uh and so I wanted to capture uh well a sense of being in what it's like to be in the prime ministerial office with that strange aquarium-like movement that happens around a prime ministerial office. People come in, come out. It's a really good way of describing you know, it, actually, yes. And, 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 you, and, you, and you're sitting there and you're never sure exactly who's doing what. People are obviously aren't, you know, finishing off other assignments, doing other things exactly. for the prime minister. Exactly. Yeah. So it's sort of like you, you, I wanted to take the reader to a point in time and to a place, which was the beginning of narrating a story, and uh, yeah, so we, we we situate ourselves there. I, uh, in the in the Turnbull days, I remember uh, being uh, ridiculously and unproductively distracted by 
this uh, John Olson painting that was sort of out of the left corner of my eye. And bizarrely, uh, Scott Morris and I were having a, a very convivial conversation, but I, I felt like I could see out of the corner of my eye there was a small gnome in, the, in a little shrine. In, and, and because I'd been ridiculously and unproductively distracted when I visited Malcolm Turnbull, I'd resolved not to do that that time. So I couldn't look at the gnome. I, I could only Don't just look at the, the gnome. Exactly. That is the rule. <laughs> No. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I didn't bore the reader with that too much. But anyway, yeah, it was just it was just a, a, a point, an origin point for telling the story. Well, but it's good though because it it really does make it very kind of retail in a sense. And and I, I was planning to talk about this a bit later, but but it also reflects, I think, your style, which is which I think is a more personal style of writing, which pervades the essay. And you do this from time to time throughout, where you you don't. Uh, try and sell the artifice that I think has been quite common in this kind of essay writing and, and long-form journalism, or, or, as if you, the writer, doesn't exist. Yeah. You do exist, yeah. and you make that point several times and you give your impressions. And I think it takes the reader into that process in a way that's very accessible, and I, I found it really... Um, well, just just on that point, um, and, uh, and uh, again, thanks for raising it, um, I don't... Uh, you're right about my style. I, I am present, in particularly in long form, and that's not because uh, I, I want to uh, insert myself uh, as some kind of well, I don't know, like some sort of... Some sort of ego exercise. Ego, yes, yeah. it's not an ego exercise. In my mind, that whole conceit, that uh, that voice of God journalism where where it's, events are narrated on high by some anonymous sort of recorder of them mm. is fundamentally dishonest. I hate that craft. You do exist. You are present. You do bear witness. You do have views about what you're bearing witness, the, the events that you're bearing witness to. And so I do it not to inject myself but to be honest about my craft and to show my methods and yes, that is yes. that I'm I'm present I'm here I'm I'm assembling facts I'm making reflections on them uh so that you don't wonder how how and how this material is being put together. Yeah, how, how do you know certain things? Well, you, you know, know them because you were things. there and you're exactly. being honest about the fact you exactly. were there. Yeah. Yes, I think that's really interesting and 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 the fact you then you talked quite early on in that same uh, discussion about being in the PM's office. You talk about his likely perceptions of you. Mm. Uh, you talk <laughs> about the Yes Mate Club yeah. uh, that that you describe the secret handshake shake of the Yes Mate Club, and and that club. Well, I'll, I'll allow you to put it in your words, mm. but my understanding is uh, you're talking about the kind of supportive cabal of media mm. around. The government, mm. uh, particularly some shock jock, but also um, many News Corp publications, mm. um, and you're not under any illusions that you know you're not from there. I'm not. And I'm you, not a member. No. Precisely. <laughs> and you even say, uh, "I'm not of any particular use to to, mm. to this PM," and and you sort of both know it. But mm. nonetheless, you have a convivial, if occasionally irritable, relationship. Yeah, that's basically right. Well, well diagnosed. Yeah, we we bump along very well. Um, and uh, and in a funny way, I think enjoy one another's company. But. The, Again, the sort of the, the the counterpoise there that I'm sort of setting up is that prime ministers do do lots of high velocity transactional interviews, yes. right? On on uh, on television, on radio, uh, sometime with favoured outlets. Uh, this prime minister is not a sit down, spill your guts type of 
Prime Minister. It's not how he rolls. Even with the Yes Mate Club, there's been very limited sit down mm. and reflect on your own methods and your own decision making. Uh, so it was a different sort of interview that Scott Morrison consented to do. And I'm very grateful to him because I think actually uh, he he approached the conversation in the spirit where he would give some reflections, uh, some elements he would give no reflections at all, which were also interesting. But uh, he, it's rare that he does interviews like that. And, uh, and, uh, but it was very important to me for the history of the thing, the history component of the project, that he be permitted to narrate events in his own voice. Mm. And, uh, and so anyway, that's, that's, was really how the interview sort of spooled over the, over the whole essay. And consistent with that idea of, of being honest and authentic about it, I, I think we can say, both of us, with our experience in print journalism, that you get, there, there are different things that happen in print interviews, even though they are being, you know, there's often a voice recorder on yeah. the table. Yeah. Because it's not for broadcast itself and it's not particularly live, yeah. particularly it's not live, I should put it that way, um, there are politicians behave in different ways. In some ways they're more honest and in some ways they're more honest about what they're not prepared mm. to talk about. You yeah. can't say on 7.30 report yeah. during a live interview. Well, you, you uh, can, but you look like a bit of a dope, don't Precisely. You? If, you, if you refuse to talk about something because, uh, you know, you just don't want to, it's politically inconvenient. We've seen politicians do that and they find ways of doing it. But mm. in print they might just say, oh, no, I'm not talking. Yeah. Not going to do it. Yeah. You know, literally put the hands up. Yeah. Not going to do that. Yeah. Not going there. Not going there. Um, so there's a certain, there's a certain honesty, but there's also a different character to the discussion. Yeah. And I think you had relatively, well, you, as you say, you sort of flicked the recorder on and picked up your pen and thought, <laughs> off we went. Let's see what we get. Let's see what we get. Yeah. Um, and how would you describe the interview overall? Uh, well, I think uh, there were he there were it was mixed. Uh, there was some really interesting reflections uh, that um, at the time that we did the interview was was the first time he'd said so, uh, that he he put some characterizations around his decision making and his deliberations that he had never said before, and I found quite interesting. Uh, I was a bit disappointed uh, because I, I describe in the essay, um, if folks watching on have read it, I describe, um, as, as Mark set up at the beginning of this conversation, this sort of en enigmatic protean figure, uh, this outline, this character, that, you know, the, the, the objective was to try and colour in, colour in. So I'm presenting a very protean, movable, pragmatic figure with without uh, sort of definable values, but I, again, I wanted to balance that portrayal of him with religion, uh, which is obviously very important to this prime minister. And I was a bit disappointed in the interview that he didn't go there. I would have really appreciated a conversation in depth about his religious beliefs, about his philosophy. Uh, Literally things like, is your belief system literal or is it metaphorical? How does it impact your decision making? Again, all questions that you wouldn't ask a prime minister if it wasn't fundamentally important to them as humans and their humanity. Yeah, he's by no means the first Christian prime minister. By In no fact, means. Uh, there, there have been very few who aren't. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. But I was, I, I really, I wanted to push that conversation a bit further and uh, he was really not interested in crossing that threshold. Uh, which and I that's because of his. Is, is that because of his political antennae? I mean, is he thinking 
this is the way I get I get marginalised, this is the way I get criticised, yeah. this is the way in which my critics will suggest that I'm, uh, you know, not, not, not making rational political decisions, I'm mm. making ones governed by, by my religious belief. There's, there, there would be a certain amount of risk aversion, mm-hmm. obviously, I think, uh, and all, but also I think it's uh, uh, Scott Morrison is a person who has a private self, uh, some politicians, uh, as we know, right, uh, are all out on the field. Mm-hmm. There's sort of nothing left to the imagination, right? Um, Scott Morrison has a private identity and has friends who are outside the realm of politics, people with whom he's associated for decades mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and family life. There are, there are things that are off, that are outside the realm of what he would regard as reasonable scrutiny. And religion falls into that category. So I think partly it's risk aversion, partly it's very, very close to the identity of the person. And if you, if we sort of go back to that surgery while the patient's conscious metaphor, you don't want me stumbling around, poking things, seeing, you know, seeing what might emerge. Uh, so yeah, it's sort of, I think there's a couple of reasons there why I didn't really buy in. So what did we learn about his religion then? Um, is, is he a kind of a Bible-thumping evangelist? <laughs> is he, um, you know, from some morally selective Pentecostal church, which is the way a lot of his critics would, would uh, describe him? Is he a hidebound conservative? Mm. Um, or, or is he someone who's more or less... I mean, what, what did we learn about the interplay between his religion and... And his politics. I mean, his religion obviously is a matter of conviction. Yeah. But there have been a lot. There's been a lot said about him being a pragmatist. Yeah. And about him being someone who has, for example, chosen to live in the Shire and become, you know, the, the Messiah from the Shire. Yeah. Chosen to be a Sharkey's fan. Yeah. Um, did he choose the Liberal Party that way? And mm. and 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 if and even if he didn't, does he hold a number of the beliefs within the Liberal Party? Kind of. Um, uh, under the umbrella. Well, well, there's yeah, there's sort of there's these two dimensions, and obviously a person is always more complicated than two dimensions. But for the purposes of this conversation, let's just say there's two dimensions. There's a political self, mm-hmm. uh, which is, uh, to my observation, infinitely flexible, pragmatic, and whatever it takes in order to land the outcome will do. So there's that. Then there's uh, the the private religious dimension to uh, Scott Morrison, the human which is uh, religion is a, a connection point between himself and a category of Australian voters. Um, the Prime Minister does want people to know that he is religious and and here is the strain of religion that, that he practices within. He, he wants people to know that. Um, uh, in terms of uh, the person, it, religion, I think I say in the essay, it's, it's, it's a hinterland for him. It's a connection point to his family, his parents, his wife, his children, their social circle. Uh, it's, it, it is, it is comfort. It is sustenance. It's all kinds of very important things to him. And he says in the, uh, in terms of what do we learn, which was actually a question, um, in terms of the, pa- that for Scott Morrison over the last several months, there has been the pandemic and managing it and all the other business of government. And then there has been, Home, family, and God. That's, that, that is the, you know, that is the, uh, a, a man at capacity in terms of his experiences. And again, it's just, 
instructive to stitch this story together and give people a sense of of this person who is occupying this office. And those two hemispheres are separated by being, one, full of uncertainty. This essay is called The End of Certainty, <laughs> right? Yeah. So there's a whole lot of uncertainties in, in and, and imponderables in that uh, economic, political sphere. Yeah. And then he's got that other world that you described of family and, yeah. and, and church and social group and, and the values that they all share, mm. which is his certainty, That's right. I suppose. No, 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 exactly. It's they're, they're two parts of the same thing. And there, there is a, a, a verse, um, uh, just quickly, because I know you'll want to get on, um, uh, that uh, there was a there was a fragment of prayer that uh, showed up on YouTube during uh, the pandemic, which I refer to um, with uh, Morrison and and uh, I, don't, I don't know what you call it, like a, a study group or it was a, a, Zoom, a, a, Zoom, a Zoom a Zoom religious meeting religious meeting. Uh, and he, he quoted a couple of verses, including uh, one uh, w- that was about being a repairer of walls. Yes, yes, and uh, and. He said he he told me he discovered that verse during the bushfires that because he reads he reads hmm. he reads verses reads the Bible, and uh, and anyway I, I say in the essay it's sort of like uh, Morrison it would be a construction that that he would like because it sort of speaks to the way that he's tried to manage the pandemic through this very practical pragmatic sort of approach. So anyway, yeah, no, well, I think that is interesting because it does actually sort of dovetail with what we can see uh, about how he, how he's, you know, positioning the country as he sees it at the moment but also into the future. And it's going to be around a lot of physical infrastructure-type yes. yeah. things, yeah. which is Repairing, quite consistent with that. Of walls. So there's yeah. kind of the ethereal, the, there's the metaphysical world which underpins his understanding of it, mm. and then there's his sort of duty which he feels as a leader and he has this preternatural yeah. belief in himself, yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't does. he? Well, he's the captain coach. Yeah. It's interesting. He, um, he, he. I mean, you asked the question at one stage: Is his belief cult- cultural or doctrinal? Yeah. Uh, which I guess is not not ever answered. Which is the point you were making before. But he characterizes his belief with these three words: confidence, encouragement, and assurance. Mm. I found that quite fascinating mm. because. And, and and perhaps uh, it's unfair to sort of make the assumption that that's that's you know where it all ends for him. I mean, he's making a, a particular point there, perhaps. But I would have thought more progressive Christians would talk about things like compassion mm. and and equality. Mm. You know, that, yeah. that they are very consistent Christian themes. Yes, but they don't come up. His is more. It, it feels like it's more of a. I know we're turning into the religion report now. <laughs> But it feels like it's more of a um, a kind of a self-focused faith. It's, it, it's, Look at those words: confidence, encouragement, assurance. Yes. He's talking about what it gives him. Yes, yeah, that's right. And it's and 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 but that's that's sort of the point, really, that it is um, that it is very important to him as a human to uh, the way he presents to the world, and as you say, it, it, this this confidence about his own position in the scheme of things. So. You know, he's, uh, he, I sent him in to go as captain coach. Um, sometimes I think he can tip over into being a savior and the country actually needs a prime minister rather than a savior. Uh, but anyway, it's, yeah, it is, it is fundamental to his being. So I didn't want people reading the essay to emerge from reading it with a sense that 
there is no core to this guy because that's wrong. There is a core to this guy and and it turns around religion, family and these issues. Anyway, you talked You talked at the start, and I was actually going to mention this earlier on, but it, it strikes me it's relevant now. You talked also at the start of the essay about, I like, I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning this because I really like this phrase, your ambition to try and capture him in flight, yeah. capture an Australian Prime Minister in flight. Yeah. Um, did you do that, do you think? Oh, well, I'd give you the politician's answer, which is it's up to others to judge. <laughs> no, but, but genuinely it is up to others to judge. Yeah, uh, it, but I, I suppose as the writer, do you have a sense that you did get enough of I mean, it, it's a bit like trying to describe a fire, Yeah, uh, isn't it? I mean, it, it, is, it is extremely difficult, uh, I've got to say. Hmm. It is extremely difficult. And I wrestled... Uh, not only with those things that writers wrestle with, which is the structure of the piece, doesn't make sense, are my facts right, have I checked them? Uh, but it, it was, have I got this guy? Have I got the tone right? Have I got to the essence of things? And he does not, as a subject, he does not make that easy because he does have this strange, I think I say it in the essay, reflective quality that uh, that the, he puts enough of him as you to go back to where we started because it was such a lovely analogy, the line drawing. He puts the line drawing out there so people know the contours of the person. They know broadly who Scott Morrison is. If you went down to the pub tonight and you asked five people in the bar to describe Scott Morrison to them, you'd get a neat character Mm. study, right? So there's enough of the guy in the public domain to be a recognisable figure, but he also recesses himself so that uh, it's almost like he creates the space for voters to project onto him what they want to project onto him. It's a really interesting idea. It's it's quite... It, it even works internally, I think, because I, I think even his colleagues have watched him grow in office, yeah. have watched him assume prime ministerialship or the prime, minister, prime ministership yeah. um, in, in ways that have surprised them. I yes. mean, he was the stopgap. He was the one yeah. who... Who was neither Malcolm Turnbull nor Peter Dutton? Yeah, and and therefore came up the middle. Yeah, yeah. came up the middle and was expected yeah. to lose. Yeah, but instead he believes and goes back to this Absolutely. partly to this thing of personal belief. But he yeah. believes he can do it. Yeah, he he does do it. Yeah, and um, and he does have more authority than either of those two had, yeah. uh, or e- either you know Turnbull or Abbott had, and, and yeah. Dutton would have had. Yeah, um, he's he's. A very successful political product mm. in that sense. Yes, but it's sort of like, in a way, um, getting which is getting back to your question: Did you actually, <laughs> Catherine? Did you succeed? Um, answer, Mark. I don't know, um, but I um, think you did. <laughs> well, thank you. But uh, but no. It, why I'm hedging slightly is because there is this air gap. Yeah. This sort of um, this uh, fundamentally. There are many things you can say and describe about Scott Morrison and be absolutely accurate in doing so, but then there is this element where he allows this space for projection. So did I get that? I hope so because I tell you what, I sweated over that more than anything else in the piece mm. was getting the tone of that right and uh, and being accurate and fair but also capturing the guy in a way that didn't pull any punches. So I don't know that people watching on will tell us if I succeeded. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, you started off this process as you, as we said at the start, as you said at the start, um, as a, as a an attempt to draw colour in Scott Morrison. Yeah. But of course, this mega event happens, yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. And no profile of Scott Morrison would make any sense without yeah. that all that context coming into it. It's such a, an, an enormous historical event. Yeah. And consumed everything that the government has been doing and, and that we've all been thinking about and all the media and everything else changed lives in all kinds of ways. The Australian government's been broadly accepted to have done well, very well really, by international standards mm. in its management. Do you think Morrison, having spoken to a number of people, you, you, you interviewed for this essay um, a number of his colleagues, ministerial colleagues, people like Birmingham and Frydenberg, mm. uh, uh, Christian Porter, mm. uh, but you also interviewed a couple of state leaders, yep. uh, Andrew Barr and uh, yep. Daniel Andrews. Yep. Uh, and a number of other people, including a number of officials, right? So you've mm. you've got a. a, a I, I moved. A, I moved my point of view around. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, um, as some people have pointed out, that he's been very lucky to get <laughs> the credit that he's got? Uh, we know George Megalogenis wrote, you know, a couple of months ago now, a month or two ago, that you know he points out that in fact Morrison had opposed a number of the things which mm. ultimately have been mm. critical in getting us to the effective suppression that we had, certainly up until yep. till June. Yep. Um, you know, he wasn't for school closures. He wasn't for yep. border controls. All true. Uh, you know, he, he was reluctant to he close international for, borders. Yes, wasn't for, well, wasn't for the first range of lockdowns that Gladys Berejiklian and Daniel Andrews had to, in essence, take that out of his hands. At Correct. Least. And he and Brendan Murphy were very cold on the idea of even face masks right up until quite recently, in yep. fact, yep. Uh, and, and quite quite directly so, yeah. uh, even though they are now recognised as, you know, a very important part of this. So, I mean, you, you know, yeah, what, think, what's your well, judgement about that? Well, I think um, just just taking one tiny step back, um, one of the things I wanted uh, to do in recording the history was record it because it, a number of very remarkable things happened, not the w- least of which was the political class embraced evidence, mm. thank yeah, yeah. God for all of us. Mm. Uh, this, this collaboration occurred between state leaders that was both combative and cooperative at the same time with everybody pulling in different directions. Mm. Uh, uh, extraordinary relationships popped up around the place that wouldn't have happened in normal times, all of which I wanted to document. And you do that really well with that meeting on March the 13th. Friday, March the 13th. Where they created the National Cabinet on the where a, Where a COAG is occurring and then the Prime Minister at a certain point kicks everyone out of the room who's not, <laughs> not a leader. Not a leader. Yeah, yeah. not an elected leader. Yeah. So you've basically got nine people in the room. Yeah. Kicks his own staff out, yeah. all the officials all out, the officials. all their officials out. Uh, and the national cabinet really emerges from that moment. Yes, exactly. And so you ask me, is he is he lucky? Because has he sort of stood back passively while others have delivered the successes? Well, possibly through one reading, that's true, mm. or there's an element of truth in that. But I don't think it quite captures it. I think what was really important for the national interest in that 
opening period where there was this successful suppression and backed by the fiscal measures, which obviously Morrison and Frydenberg were very preoccupied by, um, was that dialogue that happened, that that sort of, uh, that, dare we say it, deliberation hmm. that occurred, right? Uh, not some ding-dong, knock-down clowns, let's have it all out in the public domain with talking points and nonsense. But as you say, in that room on the, on the 13th of March, these nine leaders gathered together in this ridiculously cavernous football stadium yes. and then decided on the hop to invent a whole new kind of governance mechanism. And it was, there was, at least initially, there was this sort of, um, there was, they decided to trust one another and trust one another to be able to have really robust dialogue. Because the times. first thing he said to them when everyone went out of the room is, yeah. we've got to pull together. Yeah. Or some words exactly. to that effect. Exactly. They made a decision on the 13th of March not to be a circular firing squad. Mm. Yes, I like that term. Basically. Yeah. That's, that's the decision they made. And, and there was a lot of buy-in in that initial phase because they didn't, as you point out, Mark, they did not agree on everything at all. And some of those things were robustly contested within that group of people. And if Morrison didn't go far enough, then, and, you know, in the first lockdown, Berejiklian and Andrews made sure he did. Yeah, the two biggest states essentially drove the process and gave legitimacy to it. And because Morrison was had so much buy-in to, the, to that new mechanism, yeah. indeed he was the originator of it, yeah. he was the one who sort of suggested yeah. it. Yeah, um, he kept it together. He even protected through, the mechanism exactly. even when there was... Exactly, uh, even it, through those disagreements, which is a, a fascinating governance study. Like there'll be so many great PhDs written on this period, seriously, because it is fascinating. So, but I think Morrison, to give Morrison credit... Um, I think he was right uh, at the beginning in saying it's lives and livelihoods. Both are important. And this is a dialogue. Mm. We have to work out what the sweet spot is here between the public health imperatives and the economic impact of them. And so the thing, this is why I want this history forever mm. <laughs> recorded, mm. because it's really important what happened there yeah. and that people got down to the essence of trying to make these decisions really consequential decisions uh, made with imperfect information, made where not everybody agrees, uh, they found a mechanism to basically resolve those disputes and manage the first phase of COVID in the interests of the Australian public. And we have not seen a set of circumstances like that in politics for a decade. No, and that, so that's right. it's really important what happened there, uh, which is not to sugarcoat it or say everyone's fabulous or they're all geniuses. Or to even say necessarily that it's durable, or, well, that, which well, is this an is, interesting this question. This is the point we're reaching now, which yeah. is sort of uh, fascinating, grim, depressing, all of the above. Yeah, because uh, anyone who said, and I was probably one of them who, who spoke with some optimism about this new period of, of harmony and, and cooperation and mm. evidence-based policy... Um, if you ever wrote about that, you would have people jumping all over you saying that, oh, you know, politics as usual will be back very soon. Yeah. And in some ways they were right. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we've certainly seen the return of politics in its old form. Yeah. 
but there are still residual aspects of no. Of well, there the, are, and it, and I'm I'm hopeful, and let's uh, we can try and be hopeful for a change because it's been a tough year. Um, <laughs> but it's 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 bad. Obviously, the the trends we're seeing at the moment uh, where with Morrison carpet bombing Andrews, uh, carpet bomb, bombing Anastasia Palaszczuk, the premiers too pushing the boundaries of. Mm-hmm. Of uh, of competence, of uh, parochialism, of all of these things, right? Um, really unfortunate. But I'm hopeful, you know, famous last words. But I am hopeful that maybe once the Queensland election has passed, uh, and uh, if Victoria, obviously, thank God, if you if you're watching us in Victoria tonight, hats off to you guys. What an amazing bloody Absolutely. job you've done! Like seriously, what an amazing job you have done. Uh, if that trend continues, if Andrews can get on top of the second wave and we can sort of revert to a, a reset mm. sort of Mark II mm. phase of proceedings, I think this group of leaders have invested quite a lot in this in this deliberation. And, and there's I'm, enough of the relationship between oh, Morrison and so. Andrews there. Well, it seems there so. is. Uh, certainly can... Andrews has held back in, in kind of responding much yeah. in, a, of a, in a personal way. I, I and, hope And that. I think Morrison has been restrained for yes. the most part. It's It's yeah. been some of his senior ministers that yes, have... that have carried been, most of the water yeah. in the fight. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I hope they can pilot their way back to not kumbaya and everyone sitting around braiding each other's hair and watching rom-coms. <laughs> I mean, obviously that is not <laughs> going to happen, uh, but I hope they can pilot their way back to uh, the point that they were during March, April, May, June, where they, uh, where they could see the benefit uh, for, for themselves, for their own standing, for the country in finding that sweet spot where they can uh, agree to disagree in a way that's actually productive rather than sort of reverting just back to the worst of what we've seen for too long. Yeah. Of course, another reading of it is that when politics starts lapping at the shore of any particular in any particular polity, as we're seeing it with Queensland, they have an election that tends yeah. to mean that that becomes the the, the priority for uh, the Queensland government. Yeah. Uh, well, know, there's only one issue on the ballot in Queensland. That's uh, has has Palaszczuk managed COVID. That's there's only one issue really on the ballot. Yeah, and and from what we can tell, there's going to be quite a lot of support for mm. the way she's managed it. Mm. So you can't fault it in terms of what the voters want. In Queensland, mm-hmm. but if it's a an indicator of how politics will come rushing back in yeah. as elections loom, and we know that we're likely to be in an election federally, yeah. some something like around this time next year, yes. in the second half feel, of next year. I feel year. exhausted at the thought of that, Mark. But yes, that's it's <laughs> more than likely, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so you know, I guess it'd be optimistic to say that we won't see a lot fair bit of politics played around that, mm-hmm. and when it's played by the federal government. It's um, it's got some pretty big implications Absolutely. nationally. Absolutely. What else have we learned though about the? I mean, I'm, I'm interested in what what you think about what we've learned about how this federation works, mm. uh, outside of the discussion about the national cabinet, but yeah. just the extent to which we realise that the the Commonwealth is a kind of a fairly hollow power. Mm. It doesn't have a lot of on the ground power. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I'm also interested in what we've learned about ourselves, mm. and I suppose they're two fairly big separate yeah, subjects. They are, they are. Um, in terms of the Commonwealth, well, uh, I think the, uh, Scott Morris. We've had two federated crises in Australia this year. The first was the bushfires, and the second was COVID. 
where the premiers ba- basically have all the practical power. Mm. Uh, from from one to the next, uh, Scott Morrison learned that uh, he wouldn't be basically stranded by the federation in the second in the, in COVID, and that and he learned. Uh, a posture of leadership during the first phase of COVID, like yeah. how you present yourself, right? When mm. you don't, as you say, have all your hands on all the levers, mm. when you don't have the practical power. And I think uh, it, uh, the, the, the COAG structure needed a reboot. Now, whether the National Cabinet's the right replacement, well, that's a whole, that would be a conversation between you and I spanning hours. Mm. But uh, anyway, there's, let's see where they go with that. In terms of what have we learned about ourselves, uh, well, I think uh, perhaps it's a bit cliched, but I think pandemics are mirrors. Uh, and mm. I think uh, we have learned a lot about ourselves as a country uh, over the last several months. Um, uh, all of the weaknesses in Australian society have been magnified. Uh, well, in, in, in terms of exposed, what, you know, exposed. Yeah. What? Yeah, like uh, you know the the, the age, the, the terrible state of the aged care system. Uh, what happens to people without proper protections in the labour market? Gig, gig economy workers, mm. the rest, all, all of that. Um, we've we've learned about all weak spots. In Australia, I think uh, compared to some other countries, we're in a lot better position. Obviously, in terms of those weaknesses that mm. have been writ large, like the the genuine tragedy of the pandemic has been what is going on in America. Mm. It's just, it is just, I have no words for that. And we and we are not in that position. So we've we've learned some pluses too. Um, I, I guess the question I I pose in the piece is. Uh, whether or not we've got the collective fortitude at the societal level to really stick, to really stick, to stick together, uh, to stick with the privations and the inconveniences of this pandemic, if it's a very protracted crisis, if no, there's no workable vaccine, if it doesn't turn up soon, if if we if we're living in these new set of uh, circumstances for a long period of time. Do we have the fortitude? Do we have the collective love and regard for each other to go through this crisis together in a genuine way? I don't know the answer to that question. I, 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 I hope we do. I really hope we do. And I think one thing that's been very important in Australia is the collective buy-in for what Mark Latham would call social capital, right? Like that that whole, that it is important to have a health system that works. It is important to look after other people. It is important, you know, lives are important as well as livelihoods, all of that stuff, right? I think we've seen that on display and that's that's been a great thing to see. I just hope we can have the courage of that over over the long haul because it's that, that's yeah. A, yeah that's a yeah. question i don't have an answer no to. well none of us do uh, but uh, we've seen some positives too i mm. mean homelessness was uh, addressed quite quickly yeah. because it was a imagine big that. risk factor yeah imagine, imagine that, that. Uh, yeah, you can just solve it yeah I mean, presumably it hasn't been completely solved. No, no, um, but yes. But yes, people really were found accommodation yes. because it became yeah. a threat to everyone else exactly. for them to be out there. Exactly. Um, so you might say it was self-interest or whatever, but the point is some policy levers were pulled yeah. and a lot of people were taken out of sleeping, you know, sleeping rough, dangerous situations yeah. and provided with accommodation and yeah. that's, a, that's a fantastic thing. Another thing that you noted, um, which I particularly enjoyed, was your account of what you see around you where you live. Yeah. 
um, the yeah. kind of revival of the suburbs. The suburbs, yeah. Talk was, about that a bit. Yeah, it was kind of amazing to me uh, because uh, uh, I'm a real outlier in this pandemic because uh, apart from the couple of weeks I had off to do the first narrative run draft of the history, mm. uh uh, I have worked in the office because obviously the Prime Minister has been in the office even during lockdown. We were yeah. all in the office. Yeah. So my uh, my life has just gone on, right? When I went home and uh, took myself out and, and uh, started putting this story together, uh, it was amazing to me. Uh, my suburb, which is normally pin drop quiet mm. because everyone's at work, yes, right, was alive in a way that I have never seen before. Families around, kids around, kids playing in the street, kids going off and having adventures like we would have had in our childhood, but don't, kids don't do that stuff anymore. Um, also just little intangible things like going for a walk in the neighborhood. Uh, people are in Canberra work very hard and are generally pretty businesslike, mm. uh, not, not cold or standoffish, but pretty on task. I noticed particularly during lockdown here, people would stop at a safe distance, obviously, they would engage one another. Neighbours would have conversations on either side of the driveway. Um, people bought into this uh, idea of living in a society yes, rather yes. than an economy. It was this weird, I think I say, throwback to the sort of pre-Keating era where, you know, people came home at five o'clock and had chops and three veg and, mm. and were heard in their backyards, right? Yes, we, we, we'd yes. been so on this uh, sort of enmeshed in the productivity economy that we've lost that sense of an organic uh, sort of community life. And I saw it everywhere. It was just one little thing. Uh, my lovely neighbour who lives three doors down, you know, we'd lived in this house for a long, long period of time and, you know, we've just sort of had cursory, you know, how's your father's on the way up and down mm. the street? But... Yeah, I, I, I recorded. I think I he came past with his dog at the same time every day, and we and we waved to each other, and then we engaged with one another. Mm. It's kind of like neither of us had had time to do that before, and these may sound like little things, but for me, they were massive, and I wanted to record what I could see around me, which was this community brought together by anxiety and adversity, not knowing what the future holds choosing to value basic humanism, basic connection with other people uh, and and sort of assigning a value to that. Whereas uh, uh, in our normal frenetic 24-7 lives, I haven't seen a lot of that happening in, in my neck of the woods. So I That's right. And we're also sort of centrally focused. You know, we like going to the city. We like where yeah. many of us work in the city, whether, you know, whatever city it is around Australia. Um, and... And yet people were staying home and so they were yep. going to their local cafe yes. at the shopping centre, yep. at the local shops or whatever it is. So th there's actually been a bit of a revival yeah, in definitely. some of those businesses as well. Yeah, uh, 730 did a story on this recently. Mm -hmm. um, some of the, you know, the, the, the suburban uh, eateries are actually doing more trade yeah, at the takeaway I'm not, places. I'm not surprised. Uh, yeah. Which is really quite interesting. And, and as you say, you know, people have got a bit more time as well. Because they're at home, right? They're yes. not spending time commuting yep. and all the sort of irritation that that brings. And, yeah, and they had and kids at home during the lockdown when mm. the schools were closed. Mm. They had kids too, so managing that out and about. And the other thing, just quickly, uh, that, that in my neighbourhood everybody bought into one another's adversity in quite tangible ways. When you say, 
sort of revival about suburban cafes and all of that sort of stuff. Like the neighbourhood really rallied for our yes. businesses. Yes. Like well and truly rallied. And everybody was really engaged in who was on JobKeeper and who wasn't and who was okay and who wasn't and all of that sort of stuff. So that's a nice thing to learn about your country, I think, that uh, when the chips are down, people do, people are interested and they do rally. Now, we're sort of getting very close to being out of time and there's a number of questions I want to get to from um, from viewers. Uh, but just very quickly before we do that, tell us about your conversation with Brendan Murphy, the Chief Medical mm-hmm. Officer, when you raised... Uh, the case of Anthony Fauci, the um, oh yeah, oh uh, dear, the, yeah, he was very the, cold, sort actually. of US equivalent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I sort of for a period in the time early in the pandemic, I, I imagine there'd be a few people watching on this evening that may have also developed a minor obsession with Anthony Fauci uh, because he was sort of such a stoic character mm. uh, in and that in amazing that voice and amazing accent. voice. Uh, you know, it's like incredible sort of character and such a foil to Donald Trump and yeah. the kind of excesses of Donald Trump. I asked Brendan Murphy uh, whether or not he had met uh, Anthony Fauci or had an association with him, and, uh, and he said, "Oh, that they had had some sort of um, at a distance dealings. They weren't they weren't best buddies." Um, but it was <laughs> it was sort of the tone I think of Brendan Murphy at that point. It was sort of like we both sort of thudded into this point of the conversation where both he and I recognised the alternate reality that could have been Brendan Murphy's, that he could have been the expert who went into the room with the politicians, who gave them advice and was basically dispatched to the bleachers, right? Brendan Murphy Although is... Although he did do that at one point. No, no. He, he, he did have to go back into <laughs> no, that, no, cabin, that, that no, no, no. meeting, wasn't it? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah he, right. had to, he did. He, he went in and gave it an early reading and then the, the state medical advisors, because of pressure from the premiers, <laughs> sent him back in to give another one anyway. That and that was about been, lockdowns, wasn't it? That was it? about yeah, lockdowns, yeah. yeah, or the pace at which lockdowns would occur. Yeah. Uh, social distancing would occur yeah. and that's, yeah, that wasn't a happy day for Brendan Murphy. Um, no. But, it, yeah, he, it was more, yeah, we had this experience in the conversation, he and I, where we both realised that there was a parallel universe. That, and there was a proxy, really, in the question, which yeah. was, you know, is Donald Trump mad? Yes. You yeah, know. well, exactly. Where, yes, like he could have been, he, all the state chief health officers, they're all called different things, could have been advising leaders who, who didn't give a shit, who was mad, who saw the pandemic as an opportunity for... Uh, base politics mm. of various types, right? Um, and Murphy's relief that he was not in that situation uh, was was profound and palpable in the piece. And that's not to say that leaders slavishly followed his instructions because, in fact, that didn't happen. Uh, and we get into a, sifting that a little. Mm. But he was so profoundly grateful to be in a country where the expert advice was valued and he Murphy considers that was the difference between succeeding and failing and and he is right about that mm, and, demonstrably so I yeah, think. yeah yeah look a final one for me just because I can't uh, it would be remiss not to go to this question and it goes to job keeper and job seeker yeah. and the question that you ask the prime minister about that and he expresses what I think is quite an interesting view, an interesting interpretation of it. He says that progressives essentially mm. misinterpreted <laughs> this hyper-Keynesian yes. shape-shift by the government. Yeah, yeah. What's yeah. his argument? Well, uh, it's, it, 
it's sort of it's in a section of the essay where I give the Prime Minister an opportunity to try and expand on his own political philosophy mm-hmm. if he can describe it to me. It, it occurs in that section of the essay. And uh, he said, yeah, there was this sort of frisson of ideological excitement when uh, they rolled out all the stimulus, JobKeeper, JobSeeker, and uh, progressive forces sort of welcomed this conversion because, of course, the coalition is the mob that had been... It was all about debt and deficit disaster exactly. and you know, balancing the bullet, ba- balancing ba- the budget. Exactly, but also just the basic Keynesian response during the global global financial crisis. Well, they, people they, like Morrison made their careers really on exactly on vilifying on, on vilifying that, yeah. right? So it was quite the conversion. Uh, but he, he he was saying, "Look, I, it's not like I woke up one. This is these are my words, obviously, not the mm. prime minister's. Uh, it's not like I woke up one day and became a raging lefty." Uh, I saw a practical problem that needed fixing mm. and then I worked out a way to fix it. And uh, I asked him to expand on that and he said uh, he used the stopping the boats example actually oh. as as an example of identify your practical problem and set about fixing it. Now, a lot of progressive people would say stop the boats was, you know, a, a sort of a, a manifestation of ideology. Mm. In Morrison's telling, stop the boats was a bar that Tony Abbott set during the election, we will stop the boats. If they didn't, if the coalition didn't stop the boats, they'd be dead in the eyes of the voters because they will have broken a promise. So then it's a matter of triangulating how you fix the problem, right? So it's sort of like trying to explain to readers that he, Morrison brings in a bit of a mindset of the campaign director to being the prime minister. Yes, you described him as a nuts and bolts animal. Heavy on party research, light on Edmund Burke. Yeah. Oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you. That's more than kind. Uh, but, it, but also, I think, demonstrably, demonstrably true. Mm. Uh, he's sort of, uh, he, he gets quite irritated, uh, by philosophical conversations. It's, it, he gets, mm palpably irritated right. by them. That's not to say that he uh, he's not blue team to the core. This guy is absolutely blue team to the core and, and as partisan as they come. Yeah. But if something is to be an ideas seminar, you see Morrison mentally check out, right? right. If, there's a se- if there's a problem in front of him that needs solving, then there, he's the first bull through the gate, right, in order to try and get it done. So again, it was trying to capture this this um, sense of how he approaches the, the things on his desk. So anyway, he sort of yeah says, "Oh, everybody thought I was a lefty, but actually, I was just solving a problem." And I, and and that was consistent with conservatism. You were saying because yes. it was about stability, exactly, and security, yes, rather than yes. structural change to the economy that is permanent. Yeah. I mean, he's very sort of clear on that. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Now, look, I, I should have had 15 minutes for questions from, from <laughs> have we, uh, viewers. Have we messed up? We've got about seven minutes, right? Oh so we're going to okay. have to do it. We'll right. cycle through them yeah, quite yep. quickly. I'll, I'll try this and first one's not f- rave on. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're doing very well. This first one's from Trish. What role can the opposition play uh, during this time to keep the government accountable? Oh, it's very difficult. Um, uh, but uh, I think what we saw is Trish. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we saw, Trish, I think, in the last parliamentary sitting fortnight is the resumption of a normal parliamentary sitting schedule uh, enables uh, the opposition to apply some gravity to Scott Morrison, which is the thing he hates most of all. So I think uh, Parliament is the short answer. 
uh, and the return of normal accountability mechanisms. Uh, a lot of people say to me, just anecdotally, where is Anthony Albanese? Where is Labor? They're never doing anything. Mm. They don't say anything. Yeah, they don't I take any, right? You hear this all the mm. time. From where I sit, because I watch, I see everything these guys' characters say for mm. every hour of every day, mm-hmm. Labor is definitely showing up. And you up. seem comparatively sane. Well, <laughs> it's, I, I wear a mask. No, <laughs> um, no, like they are showing up. They, but, uh, when there is a huge event like the like this one, a meta event, a meta yeah. event, yeah. massive with all these different moving parts, they end up on the cutting room floor because mm-hmm. they're they're outside the governance framework. There's a million practical things that are happening in any given day that leaders need to respond to. Um, Labor's lucky to get two paragraphs at the end of the story, right? And there's a limit to 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 how much. How, how useful it is to be hyperpartisan anyway. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's exactly. Right. All anyway, right. Well, we'll yeah. move to Matthew. What can we do as citizens to create the sort of political norms from the ground up that would ensure politicians feel politically comfortable embracing bipartisanship outside of times of crisis? I think he's getting at. Reward them. That's a really good answer. There is a lot of talk, this is a question from Tom, there's a lot of talk about the COVID-19 crisis leading to big, long-lasting changes. We've touched on this a bit ourselves. Is it too early to know what change uh, will prevail Mm. um, or do you think it's already starting to take shape? Well, we are, things things are changing, uh, I think, and we've, we've detailed that a lot in the conversation tonight about things that changed in this six months and whether or not they're durable or not. I think, look, um, we've, we've seen the government, uh, in a, in a problem solving phase, uh, where we, we're already in the, another phase, uh, which is basically this, as Mark and I said, the return of politics. And then we're, we're sort of motoring to the budget, which is, will actually be Morrison's sort of first really significant outing. Hmm to uh, basically determine through a bunch of initiatives where he thinks the centre of gravity is for centre-right politics They're going to pull Australia. some big structural yeah. levers in this budget yeah, because that's so. what budgets are for. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I think we'll learn uh, a fair bit in the budget. Uh, some of that doesn't look great, uh, but I have an open mind on where we're going to be at the end of that. Well, so... we can be fairly confident it won't be a big austerity uh, program because <laughs> no. they have an election to face. No, that, and, is, uh, that is true. This uh, is the big dynamic. That here. is true. But anyway, look, uh, look on the, uh, let's regroup on that question on the other side of the budget yeah. and work out what we've learned. This one's from Tim. Do you think there will be any political repercussions for Morrison and the Coalition using the pandemic, this is Tim's words, using yeah. the pandemic as cover to punish their culture war enemies such as universities, yeah. the ABC and the arts industry? No, it's a very good point because uh, I'm sure um, I, I do obviously canvas um, a, a counterpoint to my own argument in the essay, which is that Morrison's practical, non-ideological, etc. Um, I, I, I actually say in the piece, um, I'm sure it doesn't feel that way if you happen to be a vice-chancellor of a university or if you happen to be a worker in the arts sector or if, or if you happen to be a worker here on a temporary visa, um, you, would, you would not feel that the approach is devoid of ideology. And clearly, uh, universities are, a, 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 well, I can only describe it as a staggering casualty mm. of this event. Uh, and Puzzling, really, too, even from an economic point of view. Oh, well, it, it makes no sense at all. I mean, and, and I made several inquiries to try and understand this better. The, look, I, where I landed ultimately was, I think, uh, because the government 
performed such a radical shape shift in such a short period of time to get all that fiscal support out the door and basically reinvented its character in full public view. Uh, Morrison was always uh, only a, a few steps ahead of the people who are, who are deeply ideological within his own ranks. And there is a school of thought in some quarters of the coalition that universities are factories for left-wing thought. And uh, perhaps universities were the price of getting a bunch of other fiscal support out the door. I don't know. That is pure speculation on my part. But uh, anyway, I want to acknowledge that there, that that what uh, that, that question is entirely valid. Hmm, okay. A question from Nick. When this pandemic started, all the discussion was about will this event be the trigger for reimagining how society operates? Um, do you honestly see any progression to a better, more equal Australia arising out of this? Well, the, on the plus side, what we were saying a minute ago, Mark, about the uh, people valued social capital for want of a better term, right? I think the, the country has made that very clear in the way that it has responded to the pandemic and the way that uh, leaders have been rewarded for the approach they've taken, right? So I think that's that's a genuine tick in that column, Right. Does it mean the country will be more equal? Well, that, enti- that is entirely within the remit of the Prime Minister. Uh, he will determine through policy decisions that he makes in terms of the recovery from COVID whether or not we will address these gaps that have been made obvious during this crisis. You know, will he, will he seriously reform the aged care sector? Will, uh, will, you know, looking at the labour market only go the traditional coalition way? which is deregulation, rather than looking at the vulnerability of people in the labour market who, you know, have gig economy jobs and other things, right? Will we become more equal? Well, that, that is a decision our government will make on our behalf, and I think we need to be very vigilant in watching the decisions our government makes because I think the country has been very clear that we value those fundamental Australian propositions of collegiality, fairness, uh, a life matters. Uh, you know, we we've made our verdict on that, and I hope uh, I hope our political leaders will understand that that is really important to Australians, and that set about delivering on it. Thanks, Catherine. You're a beacon of civilization. It's been great fun and uh, most rewarding talking to you about this marvelous essay. Um, and thanks for t- being so prolific in your output. I'm not ent- entirely sure how you do it. And for those of you watching uh, online or listening on the twice-weekly Democracy Sausage podcast, uh, thank you for your interest. I'm Mark Kenny. Until next time, au revoir.